The title for today's presentation is Education and Practice Partnerships in Nursing Education, the Capstone Experience in the RNSBS Program at Colby um, Sawyer College. I'd also like to welcome anyone that's viewing online. The learning outcome for today's session is at the conclusion of this learning activity, participants will be able to discuss the unique experiences of two undergraduate RNBS students in a practice-based learning experience. You need to attend at least 80% of this program to receive credit, and this educational activity carries one contact hour. Uh, neither our speakers nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. For those viewing online, if you have any questions, please send them to me at judith.m, as in May, Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, um, at hitchcock.org, and I will relay them to the speakers. We are delighted to have Jennifer Hull, Assistant Professor in Nursing and Public Health at Colby Sawyer College with us today, who will serve as the moderator and will introduce our speakers. Thank you, Judy. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, so good afternoon. Thank you for joining us for this special Nursing Grand Rounds. Um, as Judy said, my name is Jennifer Hall. For those of you don't, that don't know me, um, I'm an Assistant Professor of Nursing and Public Health at Colby Sawyer College. I teach in Colby Sawyer's RN to BS program and service the faculty for that program's capstone course. As you can imagine, senior year is a very exciting time for students at Colby Sawyer. Um, during senior year, all of our um, CSC students, including those in the RN to BS program, complete a capstone project. The purpose of this project is to demonstrate the student's synthesis of all that they've learned during their time at Colby Sawyer. So throughout the capstone experience, our RN to BS students work side by side with faculty, nurse mentors, and other interprofessional colleagues to address topics that are specific to nursing um, to complete their projects. Students identify an area of interest, conduct a needs assessment in their practice setting, complete a comprehensive literature review, and develop a strategy for implementing um, recommended practice changes based off of compelling research evidence. So as you can see, it truly is the culmination of their RN to BS journey. So with us today, I have Nicole Wakeman and Kylie McCarty. Ladies, give your little princess wave. <laughs> um, two of the seniors in our latest RN to BS cohort, and it's my pleasure to introduce them to you. So Nicole has been a registered nurse um, for seven years, having graduated with her Associate of Science in Nursing from River Valley Community College in 2011. She worked in the emergency department until 2016, serving as the night shift supervisor of the hospital where she worked, which involved overseeing the emergency department, the inpatient um, rehabilitation unit, as well as the acute inpatient unit from 2014 till 2016. And she now works for Health South Rehabilitation Hospital as an RN liaison to DHMC. And the focus of Nicole's capstone project is going to be best practices when treating psychiatric patients that are boarding in the emergency department. 
Kylie works as a hematology nurse navigator through the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. She has more than five years of experience as a hematology oncology nurse and has recently completed a three-month rather intensive mentorship program um, with Kathleen Broglio, who is one of the nurse practitioners in the Cancer Center and an expert on opioid addiction. The focus of Kylie's capstone project is going to be on the use of an opioid risk assessment tool in the hematology oncology population. So each of our speakers will have about 20 minutes to present their work. Following each presentation, there's going to be a 10-minute question or answer session um, where you, the audience, um, will have time to ask questions. So think of some really good ones. So now, without further ado, I'm going to turn the floor over to Nicole. Great. So take it away, Nicole. Thank you, Jennifer. It's really great to see so many nursing students here. I think this is a great opportunity for you, particularly now when you're trying to determine what field of nursing you want to go to, go into or what specialty. So this is a great opportunity. So uh, as Jennifer said, my name is Nicole Wakeman. I've been a nurse since uh, actually 2010 I got my LPN, 2011 I got my RN. So a little bit about myself. Um, my husband Timothy and I have 11 children, six perfect grandchildren. Um, and my specialty that I'm passionate about is ER medicine. And the reason why I chose boarding psychiatric patients in the emergency room was because during my time working in two various uh, critical access hospital ERs, it really was a difficult topic, a difficult patient population to deal with in regards to providing what they needed. Um, so that is why I chose this topic. Some of the uh, statistics surrounding boarding psychiatric patients in the emergency room um, that are really startling and, and over the years have just uh, grown in numbers. Uh, back in 2007, 12.5% of the 95 million ER visits was taken up by patients with psychiatric illnesses. Uh, since that time, in 2010, nearly 12 million visits a year were for psychiatric patients. During a one-week study, in, uh, of 7,169 ED nurses during one week, 54 and a half of them experienced physical violence or verbal abuse. That's just one week of working in an ER. And some, just one of the statistics showing the ramifications on the other end for the hospital piece is that for every boarding patient, boarding psychiatric patient in the emergency room, it takes up 2.2 beds on average for their stay. They're not a quick in and out patient. Um, and, and some of this pre presentation will kind of go into that a little bit. So my study, the purpose of my study was to examine and perform a needs assessment of the clinical preparedness and confidence of registered nurses here at DHMC treating psychiatric patients who are boarding in the emergency room. The results from this study I used to create an educational intervention program, uh, which I'll be presenting to you the results of today with some of the educational pieces uh, based off the themes that I was able to draw off of the study. The research design I chose was the needs assessment and the method I chose was a convenient sampling. So I uh, wrote up a survey. It was an anonymous voluntary survey that was administered to the emergency room nurses here at Dartmouth. 
They were administered during a, a staff meeting. I was asked um, to produce 60 copies, and fortunately I had 18 people, 18 RNs respond, so my, my numbers that I was working with was 18 return surveys. I did an extensive literature review before starting the survey process where I reviewed very uh, up-to-date, current, and reliable resources to get my background on this topic of boarding psychiatric patients in the ER. And I, throughout this presentation, you will see um, that there are references made to these uh, pieces of literature that helped to form the foundation for this presentation. Um, and then, of course, the dissemination of my information is here now in this capstone presentation. So a little bit of background on the plight of psychiatric patient population. In the late 1960s, early 1970s, a lot of the inpatient psychiatric hospitals started to shut down. During that time, also, what our nation was experiencing was a lot of vets returning from the Vietnam War as well. So here we have psychiatric hospitals shutting down, which created an influx into emergency departments of patients with mental health issues and no place to go. Um, some of the negative effects that this had on the area emergency rooms was utilizing quite a bit of the resources, the staff, staff not feeling prepared to treat this patient population, and then as well as financial implications for the hospitals themselves while these patients are staying in a, in a unit that wasn't prepared to have patients stay there longer than, you know, 12 to 24 hours. In 1970, there were 400,000 psychiatric beds available in our country. By 2006, they were down to 50,000 beds. So that's a loss of 350,000 beds for psychiatric patients. In a one-year period, 45.1 million people in the United States experienced a mental health issue. So here you have 45 million people who have some form of a diagnosis of mental health illness and only inpatient number of 50,000 beds. And that was back in 2006. Those numbers have actually decreased since then. The number of psychiatric patients now obviously outweigh the number of available beds. And along with that, adding to that situation, is cuts in mental health benefits and depleting budgets for community-based resources. You know, the money just, it's not there. And so we have right now this entire po patient population that does not have any basis of a resource for help. So just um, some of the effects of the psychiatric patient influx on the emergency departments. Of course, there's overcrowding, unavailable beds because they're now tying up beds. Um, some places, some hospitals see patients, psychiatric patients in their emergency rooms for the longest I personally have heard of from a nurse uh, who works at a critical access hospital, they had a patient boarding there for three months in the ER. Um, excessive use of ancillary resources. So we're talking about um, you know, staff, patient sitters. That has to come out of a budget somewhere. Um, if you don't have a sitter, are you gonna pull an RN or an LPN uh, or an LNA off the floor. Then you're using up those resources from other departments. Loss of revenue for the hospital because there is not that, pay, that bed turnover that a hospital relies on to get more patients in. They estimate about $2,200 per boarding patient for a loss of revenue. Suboptimal environment for the patients, 
if anybody has been in an ER, that is not the place you want to be recuperating or trying to to just exist if you have a mental illness that's going on. There's lights and sounds and all sorts of uh, neurological input that is not conducive to healing for people with mental illness. And then, of course, an overburdened and an un undereducated staff, which I will go into that in just a little bit. So uh, as previously mentioned, boarding psychiatric patients in the emergency department here at DHMC was my focus for this study. So Dartmouth has a, a pretty thorough policy regarding what to do, policies and procedures for the nurses for when they board their patients here. Um, they, one of the things is rooming the psychiatric patient in the behavioral health hallway. If there are no available rooms, then they say to secure another room. So that is taking up time because to secure another room for a patient, you have to then remove anything that may be a a danger to them. If there's tubing on the walls, if there's, you know, even can, um, canisters for, you know, an NG tube or something like that, that has to come off the wall. Anything that could present a danger to the patient that might be suicidal. Assign a sitter if needed. Again, that's using up the resources, but it is necessary, particularly for patient safety and for the safety of other patients. Uh, removing all the clothes. That is something very necessary and sometimes isn't always met with a happy smile from the patient when you're looking for contraband that they might have on them. Um, suicide precautions is something that is also in their policy. Any recent suicide attempts, any homicidal thoughts, uh, even suicidal ideation. If a patient comes in thinking about killing themselves, they may not necessarily have a plan, but that's a red flag that they need to be put into a precaution room. Um, any destructive impulses or delusions, hallucinations, um, any high level of hopelessness or is unable to contract for safety. And a contract for safety is, um, it's actually a piece of paper, and it's a contract where they say they're not going to hurt themselves. And then uh, just a few other things, again, is the sitter. Uh, if they're not in a behavioral health room, which could be the LNA and RN. Uh, some ERs utilize paramedics, and they are a great help on many levels. Unfortunately, if they have to be used as a sitter, they're not able to then help with other aspects of ER medicine. Video monitoring is a piece that is used um, to supplement the 15-minute checks. So these patients are not ones that you can put in a room and then, you know, do your labs and then say, you know, I'll be back in a little bit when we have the results, and then they can just kind of hang out. These patients need a higher level of monitoring than, than your normal patient. And then obtaining vital signs once every 12 hours or per the MD order, and then head-to-toe to, head assessments uh, every 12 hours, and then IV assessments every 12 hours. So how does this play into what I was, the purpose of my study, which was to find out the nurse preparedness and their confidence level in taking care of this patient population? So identifying the problem, which was, of course, boarding the psychiatric patients in the emergency department, the criteria and standards, which we already went over, which are the policies and procedures that Dartmouth has in place, and then the data collection, and that's what we're going to look at next. So again, I had 18 respondents uh, for the, the, who re returned their surveys. So out of those 18, these are just some of the highlights from the survey. I had eight questions on the survey. 50% um, or nine out of the 18 
they felt that they learned the basics of mental health during their undergraduate nursing education, just enough to get by. So what that means is, is that they, they read about it, they talked about it, they were taught about it, but they did not get any mental health or psychiatric clinicals. Um, that means they didn't really, they, they weren't, didn't have the opportunity to actually go into a psych ward, to actually look at the care plans for psychiatric patients, to see interactions with them. Um, and that's, so 50% of them did not have that formal type of training during their nursing education. 33% of the 18 did not expect to be treating potentially volatile psychiatric patients. So about a third of them did not realize that by working in the emergency room they were going to be treating this type of patient. 67% of the 18 were not required during their emergency room orientation to take a management of aggressive behavior course. Uh, for short, that's also called MOAB. So this is a course that teaches you how to manage the aggressive patient, how to de-escalate the situation. So 67% of them did not have that in their orientation. Um, but yet, every one of uh, the staff in an emergency room at any time could be faced with an aggressive patient. Um, anybody who has taken care of that really sweet 90-year-old um, little meme with a UTI will tell you that she turns into Hulk Hogan <laughs> over, overnight and can pack a punch. <laughs> Um, nine, the, the great, uh, very positive things that came out of my survey was 94% at this point in their work career feel that they're prepared to safely triage and care for patients admitted to the emergency department that are under the influence of drugs and alcohol. So that is a great percentage um, because that is an uh, epidemic that is not going down anytime soon. You know, at any given time, any hour of the day, you will get patients that can come in on bath salts, high on heroin, a uh, combination of alcohol and, and heroin. I mean, the, the combinations of drug and alcohol abuse that you see in the emergency room can astound you. And their behavior and actions are something that um, you don't necessarily want to see. Um, and 72% of the 18 uh, now feel prepared to triage and care for patients that have mental illnesses, such as bipolar disease, um, schizophrenia, uh, borderline personality disorder, things like that. So some of the themes that I was able to take away from my survey that are good to look at in regards to what kind of interventions can be done. Uh, lack of skills to de-escalate volatile patient behavior. Again, that is where um, the MOAB piece will come into play. Minimal training in the use of restraints and policies and procedures pertaining to them. So restraints are one of those tools that used to be used a lot more than they do now. Uh, there have been, such as the MOAB training, there have been better procedures that have come into play where you're not immediately strapping a patient down in four-point leather restraints and dealing with the patient that way. So the flip side of that decrease in use, which is great, is that on those occasions that you do need to use them, if you're not having yearly um, education on them, you may not know how to use them when you need to. And this can happen in a heartbeat. You know, EMTs can, can bring in a patient who's on bath salts and 
I had that happen once, and, and I had three guys sitting on a patient, and we had to get him in four-point leather restraints pretty quick. Um, lack of thorough understanding of the various mental illnesses and their effects that they have on human behavior. This was a pretty strong theme in the responses. So by that, we're talking about um, dual diagnosis, bipolar type 1, bipolar type 2, um, schizophrenia, the various mental illnesses there are and how those play in. You know, you could have a patient that comes in for, you know, what they think is a stomach bug, but they could actually be having a reaction to the psychiatric meds they're on because they have a mental illness. And they may not tell you that up front. You know, um, some people do lie. <laughs> so you may have a patient that may not tell you what their history is. Um, lack of knowledge surrounding psychiatric medications and their effects on human behavior. That, again, is the piece where, you know, somebody could be coming in having a reaction to their medication not knowing that that's what it is. So the what the nurses were saying in the responses on the survey is that they don't have a real solid foundation on the various illnesses and their medications. Um, and the reason for that is because when you go into when you're having your primary education and everything, it doesn't go into those as deeply as if you were going into psychiatric nursing. But what, what is a reality now is that everybody needs to have an education in psychiatric nursing because on any given unit, in, particularly in the ER, you need to have um, some working knowledge of psychiatric nursing. So the, for the educational needs assessment um, that I came to realize from, from the returns of the survey were that the MOAB, the management of aggressive behavior, is a very large piece of preparing the nurses for when they hit the floor. They're going to know that if they have a patient who is acting out aggressively or even if they perceive that the aggression or the aggravation is starting to pick up, how they're going to deal with that. Um, the psychiatric disease processes and then again the pharmacology behind those processes. So some strategies to improve nursing care. Increasing, by increasing the content uh, related to the care of psychiatric patients in uh, students' primary education, their undergraduate work, I think that is one area that needs a lot of attention now, uh, given the change in patient population, the extensive boarding times, and also the opioid epidemic that we're seeing in patients coming in on these, these drugs. Um, you really can't assume that just because you're working, you know, on a different floor, you're not going to see patients. You know, I, the cardiac floor deals with them all the time now, patients that are coming in that have had these, these drug-related incidences. Um, arranging for a defined space in the emergency department. That is something that is really important. I know that uh, Dartmouth has the behavioral health hallway. Concord Hospital has an entirely locked, closed unit for their psych patients that come into the ER. The lights, the noise, a police officer in a uniform can send a patient into another whole dimension, particularly if they're dealing with psychosis or paranoia. Um, so they're, they're a particular group of patients that need to be in a more quiet uh, area where they're not going to have all that neurological stimulus and input. Um, training and verbal de-escalation techniques. The uh, Emergency Nursing Association believes strongly that they should be tried before any type of restraint or seclusion. So the MOAB training, which will tell, part of the MOAB training, not get putting yourself 
between not allowing the patient or an object to get between the patient, you and the doorway. So you need to have a quick route of exit. So, you know, not letting the patient get between you and the doorway is very important. Not getting too close to the patient. They need their space. Um, getting into like their area can really be upsetting. If you are working, if you have a psychiatric patient that's in that is a vet, they have PTSD. A loud noise can really affect them. If they feel, if they don't know that you're coming to their room, that can startle them and put them completely in defense mode. Realize that their world is not necessarily your world. You need to enter within limits into their world. You cannot reorient a psychiatric patient to, you know, hey, you're in the ER, you need to behave, you need to not yell, you need to stay in your bed. That's not always going to work with, with these patients. Um, the best example I can give of that is that I had an elderly gentleman who they asked me to come talk to him because he was deathly, deathly scared because the building was on fire and people he knew were in the building. And that was his world. He was lying in his bed. But the building was on fire. And he was, he was I can't even explain to you how upset he was. So I got down on eye level so that I wasn't lording over him, so to speak. And I looked at him eye to eye. And I told him, I said, well, just so you know, I called the fire department. They came with their ladders and everybody's out of the building. And he looked at me and he said, everybody's safe. And I said, everybody's safe. Everybody's out of the building. And he said, really? I said, yep, so you can, you can rest and relax now. He goes, oh, I love you. <laughs> and I said, well, you have a good night. That's entering into their world because their reality is not necessarily reality, but you have to take that into consideration when dealing with this patient population. Another strategy that... Um, is very effective in helping with the psychiatric patient population in the emergency room is developing a triage tool that is a psychiatric triage tool, mental health triage assessment tool. There are a few of them out there that are being used. Um, there isn't like one standard one that every ER uses. I have not worked in an ER that uses one of these. I think looking back, it would have been very helpful in a lot of situations. Some of the basic elements of this triage tool is um, there is a rating, there's points assigned. So the higher the potential for something to go wrong, the higher rating the patient will get. Is there a risk of aggression, suicidal ideation, um, self-harm? Are they a flight risk? Risk of physical problem or medical diagnosis? So this is like looking ahead. Is there a potential for this problem to occur? And then assigning points to it. Those that have the higher rating would then be, they would already be working on taking care of some of these problems instead of making them wait in a room or some sending them back to the waiting room thinking, you know, they're not a risk or a harm, and then all of a sudden you have an occurrence in a waiting room happening. The triage scale includes um, time parameters within which the patient should be evaluated. So it's a very concrete method to use. So you don't have to try and um, look at it objectively. Well, I think he might be aggressive. There's a scale, and then the doctors can act accordingly and start the patient's treatment right away. Continuity of care to establish confidence and trust between psychiatric patients and assigned nurses. This can be a difficult one because it can be very wearisome on a nurse to day after day come in and take care of the same psych patient um, because it's very uh, emotionally and consuming and time-consuming. But for those nurses that 
are able to do it, that agree to do it and feel that they could do a good job, having that continuity of care for these patients gives them familiarity. And the nurse already knows what their type of patient they are, how they like their meds to be handled, kind of what their reality is, um, you know, and how they can make their environment more conducive to being one that's more healing and not aggravating. And then the concrete discharge planning with involvement of patients, primary care provider, or mental health provider. This is a really, really tough piece because, like I said before, the lack of community resources, it really puts the care managers in this difficult spot. Um, the, uh, there was an ENA, uh, Emergency Nursing Association, white paper that talked about this. They followed 93 psychiatric patients. Only three of them, three out of the 93, had follow-up care with their PCP. That's a huge number. That leaves 90 out of those 93 that had no follow-up with their PCP. So you know where these patients end back up? Right back into the ER, because their doctor has no idea what's going on, can't help them change their meds. If the meds need to be changed, can't put them on different meds, can't make sure he's taking his meds, um, and they end up right back in the emergency room. So follow-up care is very important. The implications for nursing practice um, would create a greater foundational education to the new nurses entering the workforce. Training in the management of aggressive behavior, that's the MOAB training I was speaking about, in, thereby increasing the nursing confidence levels and their competencies. The nursing triage tool, implementing that would be right from the get-go, creating a, a tool that would enable the patient to get care quicker and more uh, focused on what their actual problem is, and then a dedicated area in the emergency department for mental health patients, enabling the nurses to effectively treat the patients uh, without that extra stimuli and aggravating factors. So in conclusion, uh, the, you know, you start with the psychiatric patient who's boarding in the emergency department, looking at suboptimal environments, inadequate mental health resources in the, the emergency room and utilizing the staff and taking them away from other areas, caregiver lack of confidence and skills, and then the failure of follow-up care with their PCP, and it leads you right back into the psychiatric patient backboarding in the ER. And uh, I included this because I thought this was really interesting. We're the future uh, for healthcare delivery for psychiatric patients is going. This was started in California. It's called the Alameda model. There are now freestanding psychiatric emergency rooms. They usually work in conjunction with another hospital, so they're right near them. The patients get triaged usually in the field. The ambulance, uh, the paramedics, and the EMTs triage them. If it's determined that they would benefit better to go to the uh, dedicated psychiatric ER, they take them there instead of the medical ER. And what this is doing, this is alleviating those long stays in the medical emergency department. So instead of a patient sitting in an emergency room waiting five days, a week, two weeks, three weeks for a bed to open up somewhere at an outside hospital, psychiatric hospital, they're going to these dedicated psychiatric EDs where they're getting focused care they're getting treated right there for their psychiatric illnesses, and the majority of them are going home. They're, they don't have to wait for a bed because they're getting the treatment they need there. Um, they receive intensive treatment, and they're allowed 24 hours for observation and healing, and it's in an environment that's conducive 
to healing for their psychiatric illness, to med changes, whatever the need may be, and it's totally alleviating the jams in the emergency rooms. Now, if something medical arises, then that changes a little bit, and they work uh, in conjunction with these medical ERs. 80% decrease medical ED boarding from these freestanding models. Uh, in conclusion, I would like to thank the following people for their incredible support uh, and guidance during my capstone process. It was definitely a process that you can't do alone. Uh, Lisa Jenkins, my mentor. Um, Jennifer Hall, my professor. The RNs and nurse managers here at Dartmouth who have been my cheerleaders through this process. Um, I work with them every day and they're fantastic. My classmates for all their support and encouragement. Um, my husband, Timothy Wakeman, and my children. My husband has been making dinner every night for two years. So he's earned this degree. Um, <laughs> uh, Dr. Donna Moody, my mother, um, has been a huge support during this process. Uh, Cindy Griegel, who is my partner in crime here at Dartmouth, screening patients for rehab. Um, the RN and nurse, RNs and nurse managers in the emergency department that took part in this survey that were willing to help me do that. And then, of course, my health south my Health South Rehabilitation Hospital co-workers who uh, have been a great support as well. And then these are my references. So. <laughs> Questions? Yes. Great presentation. You did a nice job giving a big overview of what's going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. So it was anonymous, so there's no ages uh, applied to it. Um, the inclusion criteria was that they had to be registered nurses here at Dartmouth in the emergency room. So uh, being anonymous, that is all I know as far as demographics, is that they were here in the emergency room and that they were all registered nurses. Yes. Um, so the model you put up is like the Alameda. Alameda model, yeah. yeah. Is that being done anywhere? It is. So it started in Alameda, California. Okay. Um, that's where it originated from. There's actually, it's, it's, it's a model that is taking hold of some areas. They were incorporating one in Massachusetts where they were going to look and see how that did. Um, in, Thing I have read thus far, it has been proven to be a huge success having that dedicated emergency department. So you can have psychiatric nurses that work in there. You have um, your psychiatric doctors, as it is now in the critical access hospitals who don't have inpatient psychiatric uh, psychiatrists. They have to wait for somebody to get there to do an assessment. And it's never a doctor, it's usually, you know, one of the social resources in the community. Mm -hmm. So Patients can wait, you know, if these, if these screeners are really busy, patients can end up waiting a day, not always, but they can wait up to a day. And then when there's no available beds, they have to wait and get rescreened every 24 hours. And it adds to their length of stay, adds to their frustration. In the meantime, you have the nurses who, ER nurses don't give meds according to, like on the floor. They have their times, they've got their MAR, they administer the meds. That's not how it is for ER nurses. So it's a whole different change of thought, having to remember 
I've got this border that needs to have these meds at these times that they have to remember to do in in the midst of here comes a, a cardiac arrest or a GI bleed or respiratory distress. And, oh, yeah, i got to remember to go give him his, you know, gabap uh, not gabapen, his um, geodon on time because you don't want him to not have on time. So, gotcha. yeah, so it's a great model. So can I just ask one more question related sure. to that? Um, so within that model, um, so the psychiatric kind of, department mm -hmm. of the ED, would that almost look like an inpatient unit or is, would it still kind of be a temporary and like with like no, so, so what I haven't personally been into C1, yeah. but from my understanding, it's set up like an emergency department. Um, okay. but not, you're not getting the emergencies coming in. Gotcha. So it's so the only patients that are in there are those that have psychiatric mental health issues, um, you know, or somebody, and the reason for that is because sometimes your sickest patients in the emergency department can actually be your psychiatric patient or your, your alcoholic who's detoxing. I mean, they can crash. You know, you might think they're just drunk and they're acting out aggressively, but they can crash so quick because of the compromised nature of the, their organs and things from their alcohol abuse. Right. Thank you. Hi. I think I echo uh, what Gretchen said. You did a great job. It's a wonderful presentation, lots of good evidence. And I'm just wondering if there's a way for you to take it further. I mean, because it seems like you identified some great uh, interventions and some gaps in our care of these patients. So um, I'm hoping that leadership somehow can, you know, this can keep going and the Value Institute or some of the other yeah. avenues we have here because it, it's important and great job. Well, I know... Um they just recently um, appointed some new educators in the ER, um, and one of them uh, happens to be my nighttime previous nighttime partner in a, a different ER. So I've worked with her before. Uh, it was just the two of us at night. She's now an educator in the emergency room. So um, I would absolutely, you know, be happy to meet with her and discuss. She actually helped me uh, get some of the information for this because she works in the ER and I don't here. Um, but yeah, it would be great because those areas that were identified, they're not difficult fixes. They're just things that need tweaking so that it empowers the nurse to go out and then treat this patient population that, you know, is very uh, unique in, in and of itself. So, yes. Um, first, I just wanted to say thank you. A lot of the information that you shared not only is visible in the ED, but it also speaks to a lot of us in the inpatient mm -hmm. on the floors. Mm -hmm. um, oh, thank you. Um, I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> Um, so thank you again. And yes. then I was wondering if um, you're aware of the type of screening process they use in the field to determine what which ED they go to. That's a really good question. Um, I did not have access okay. to what actually they would use for the screening in the Alameda model. Um, that would be something really good to look into, though, because that is something I uh, would assume that the people doing those screenings, that if they were then going to rely on the paramedics and the EMTs to screen these psychiatric patients, that they're going to have to have extensive training right. on that screening. Right. So, yeah, it's a great question. I have not seen what the triage tool is for that, though. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's definitely a piece that I think 
would uh, alleviate a lot of the the lack of beds in the ER, the case, you know, you could have your own particular care managers and social workers in a freestanding ER, right. which would um, really lighten the load for Kate and Tapin <laughs> here, um, trying to find resources for these patients. So this ER would have their own set of resources totally applicable to their patient population, you know, and that would really make it a great thing. And for the patients as well, a lot of times people don't realize that these patients feel that they are um, being biased against, and, and it happens all the time. We may not realize it as nurses, but, you know, I can say for myself, you know, the, the police would call and say, we're bringing somebody in, and how many of us who've worked in that situation have rolled our eyes and said, oh, my gosh, not again. A, a large percentage of them don't ask to have mental illness. They didn't, wasn't anything they did. It's a, you know, for a lot of them, it's an organic cause. They didn't ask to be bipolar. They didn't ask to be schizophrenic. So, and here they are in this emergency room knowing that people are rolling their eyes. Um, you know, they're making it up. It's in their head. They, they're just a bother, you know. That's not going to help them get better. And in, there, were, there are surveys that the ENA has published where they've talked to patients who have boarded in the emergency department, and they've faced these biases, feeling like the, the medical profession doesn't care, that they're looked at as a burden. And what it really, I personally believe, is that it boils down to a lack of understanding on, on all of us. Um, I, I had a, a gentleman who was in the ER in our psych room and he was over 18. Well, his mother lived down south. So, case we have HIPAA laws. So I can't tell her. She's calling at 3 a.m. How is my son? How is my son? I can't tell her the details because he's over 18 and he didn't want her to know. So she And I told her, I said, you can call as many times as you want. Well, our provider got irritated. And uh, I had a great working relationship with, with him. And he said... Why does she keep calling? Like, tell her to just stop calling. And I looked at him and I said, have you ever had a child, regardless of age, suicidal, hours away from you, and you can't do anything to help them? Have you ever been there? Because if you haven't been there, don't wonder why this mother keeps calling. Because she has every right as a mother. I told her she can call me all night long if she wants, and I'll let her know that her son is safe. I can tell her that. And he stepped back for a minute, and he thought, you know what? I never looked at it like that. Because these people are real. They're somebody's son, daughter, husband, wife, grandparent. Um, you know, we need to take that into consideration when treating this patient population. They're real people. And for a large majority of them, they didn't ask to be in this situation. So, yeah. Thank you. I have one question. So I was wondering for um, suicidal patients, mm -hmm. and I think you mentioned about the Q12 um, patient assessment. Right. I was wondering with the frequency, because with, you know, based on experience with them, they can just like turn really quickly they can. violent yeah. and hurt you know, our coworkers. Right. That's a really good question. So when I was looking over uh, Dartmouth's policies and procedures on that, um, you know, a piece of paper can say one thing, and I, I take that as being the outline. At a minimum, you need to check these patients X, Y, and Z. Those who have worked in the ER or even other units know that that's just a ba you know the bare minimum. And uh, my personal opinion is that it probably wouldn't hurt 
to change some of those parameters given the patient population that is now presenting? Because you're right. You know, you could go check a patient, and then 15 minutes later, they could be totally different. They can be totally different hemodynamically, mentally. So even though the policy says, you know, and the one that particularly stood out to me was the um, head-to-toe assessment every 12 hours, um, and then if they have an IV, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, a psychiatric patient with an IV, first of all, that's a red flag. You know, yes, they do need them. But um, sometimes when that's the case, that's when, like, some soft restraints, mitts or something like that, or a very definitive one-on-one sitter has to be there. So, yes, I agree that, that some of the things in the policy probably could get reexamined and maybe changed um, and tweaked a little bit to show the difference now. Um, you know, these policies weren't just done this year. So, and particularly given the fact that the patient population has really changed, um, you know, and there's really a whole new group of patients, uh, almost a subgroup, if you will, that are coming into the emergency department. You know, uh, the one that comes to mind in regard to that would be um, an opioid drug abuser who has that whole piece of their medical record. But now they're coming in with cardiac problems because they're growing vegetation on their heart valves. So yes, they're a cardiac problem, but they're also going to be detoxing. So what do you do with this cardiac patient that comes in that's detoxing, that could get critically ill from detoxing, but oh, by the way, they have vegetation on their heart valve and they may throw a clot and stroke. So I agree. These definitely need to, I think, get revisited. In addition to the joint commission, because they're really particular with looking at, you know, the policy and things like that when they come. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, and it's it's an ever-changing, as we all know, the medical field is ever-changing, and we need to keep up with those changes. So, yes. Yeah.